Good morning. I am happy to be here this morning, being able to share the word of God with you all. And uh, I hope that you've come prepared to hear God's word. And I'd like you to bow your heads with me one more time as we begin. God, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that we would have hearts to hear and ears to listen. God, I pray that you would work on our hearts. Make it so that we can receive your word and obey it. God, with whatever we bring this morning, hurts, pains, fears, God, I pray that everyone would know that we have a God who loves us, who cares deeply for us, and who longs to have us run into his arms. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When I was young, um, growing up in Niagara Falls, Ontario, there was a park that we really liked to go to. And this wasn't a playground park. This was a, a huge park in Niagara Falls. And if you're familiar with the geography of the area, you know what the Niagara Escarpment is. Um, we were taught in schools that when the glaciers came down, it pushed up this ridge, this, this huge ridge that goes from Niagara Falls all the way up through southern Ontario. And it is at this ridge where the Niagara River spilled over and created Niagara Falls. And down from the falls, there's this park called Fireman's Park. And, uh, and my dad would take us there as a kid. We'd go hiking through. And, and when I say this ridge, it's not like a, a cliff, but a, a steep, steep, long hill. And there's hiking trails that go through it. One of the things that we loved is there was this natural spring that came up and we would get water there. There are caves in the escarpment. There are incredible rock, rock formations. And, uh, and there was a fishing pond. And one time when my brother and I were little, my dad took us fishing in the pond. We were fishing for catfish. Um, just a lot of fun. That's what was in there. And it was fun to go catfishing on a Saturday morning. And, um, and as we're fishing, I don't know how this happened. But suddenly my brother was gone. I was about six years old, and so he was about three years old, and he was gone. And it's me, my dad, and I see the fear on my dad's face. Now, what do you do when your child's missing? Now, this is like 1980-something, or as the kids like to say, the late 1900s. We didn't have cell phones, so there was no like texting anybody, asking for help. It's not like my dad could reach in his pocket and call the police and say, my son, my three-year-old son is lost in this park. And my dad became very frantic searching and like you want to go down this trail and look, but you want to keep eyesight on the pond in case he comes back. And then he's got me just six years old trying to keep up with him, frantically searching for his son. And I don't know how long this went on for, and I, I can't remember how far we went, but I, I, I remember coming back to the parking area 
And here somebody had found my brother and brought him to the parking area. And my dad saw him. And he started screaming. No, he didn't. He ran to my brother and he picked him up and was crying and embraced him because he had his son back. Because something had been lost and now was found. If you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15. There's three stories that Jesus tells here. Um, it's about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And if you grew up in church, spent any time in church, you're probably very, very familiar with these accounts. But I, what I want you to see this morning is that there is great joy in receiving sinners. Okay? There is great joy in the seeking and receiving sinners. And if you don't have a relationship with God or you're kicking this idea of church around, searching, exploring, wondering, or you have resentment, what I want you to see this morning is that there is a God who is looking for you to come to him. And that when you come to him, it doesn't matter what you bring. There is forgiveness and love and he will embrace you. And if you're a believer already, I want you to be able to participate in that great joy of seeking and receiving the sinners. The first two verses kind of set this up, and I'd like to read them. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners. All right? So Jesus has, has been teaching. He's going around, and he's always receiving people to himself. And the tax collectors and the sinners are gathering around him. And here you have the Pharisees, the teachers of the laws, the law, and they are offended and they're grumbling because these dirty sinners, these, um, these tax collectors who have sold out their, country, their, their people are coming near to Jesus. Like, they're not good enough. They haven't done the right things. They're not worthy. They don't live the way that we do. How, how on earth could they presume to be able to come to Jesus? And they're upset, like, who does this man think he is? Doesn't he know our rituals, our customs, our laws, that he would dare to fellowship with these lowly, rotten people? That's what's going on right here. And Jesus knew that the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling. And I want you to understand that as we look at these three stories, that they're all directed to the Pharisees. In the, first two, um, in the first two stories, we're going to see that the, the Pharisees love something that is lost. They love a thing that is lost. In the third parable, we're going to see that, that they really don't care about people so much as they do about things. So we need to look at man's response 
to the lost compared with heavens. So the second point is man's response to the lost compared with heavens. Verse three. So he told him this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost the one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all his friends and all his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Okay, you see this picture here, like my dad, he finds my son and and. There's no, he just embraces him. He's excited to have this back. And, and the, the shepherd who lost his sheep and he goes out searching and he gets this possession back and he tells everybody, I found it. And he's excited because he found this thing. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. You've got a hundred sheep and you lose one. And this is about how materialistic the Pharisees were, that, that they were so caught up with having things and, and that this thing was of importance that they would go out and find the sheep and they would celebrate that this sheep had returned. They would be so excited about it. And Jesus says in verse seven, just so, so as excited as you are about the return of this one sheep, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So there's a couple of things to point out about this. One, he says in heaven. Now, good Jewish people had a reverence for God and for God's name. And, and it's very frequent that they don't want to say God, Jehovah, Yahweh. So they would say in heaven. And, and this really is a reference to God. There's more rejoicing with God over one person who's saved than over 99 righteous. Contrast that with the Pharisees that would be so excited about getting this possession back. More than that excitement is the one person who is saved. All of us here this morning, um, worshiping together, singing these great songs. And I love that song. The first one is one of my favorite songs right now. And, and we're worshiping God. But God, there's more joy in heaven if one person were to be saved this morning than, than our worship. Then he goes on to tell the second story. Or what woman... Having 10 silver coins, if she loses the coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and sink diligently until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin I lost. Okay, this coin is, is like one day's worth of wages. So she's got 10 days worth of wages and she loses it. And the picture here is that she lights a lamp, that she starts sweeping the floor, turning things upside down. If you have kids, you can imagine what this search was like, trying to find this. And when she finds it, she's so excited. 
And she tells her neighbors, and they're excited with her, and they're excited for her. And the Pharisees are going, yeah, there was a coin that was lost. This was a whole day's worth of of work represented in this coin. Yeah, we're going to be excited. Yeah, we're going to rejoice over that bit of money. Verse 10, Jesus says, just so I tell you, There is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And just like before when he says more joy in heaven, he says one more joy before the angels of God. That's not wanting to use God's name inappropriately, but that's what it's saying. There is more joy. God has more joy over one sinner who repents. You see, the Pharisees would have this great concern over things, over items, over rituals, over over possessions. And they would search for it. They'd be excited over finding it. But Jesus is saying there's more joy in heaven over a person who's lost, who repents. Now we come to the story of the prodigal son. The third point, we see the contrast of the father and the brother. So there's three people in this story. There's the young man, his brother, and the father. Begins in verse 11. He said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Okay, so this young man comes and he says, give me my inheritance now. Now, being the second born, he didn't get half of it because the first born always got a double portion. So he essentially got one third of the inheritance that he would receive. Verse 13 says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out, and he lived a good life. And he spent it all, and he wasted it all in reckless living. And, and the point of this story isn't about how sinful he was. He just, he just left the father, and he wasted it all in reckless living. And now he's hitting the bottom. And he's got nothing. And he's finding himself in need. And this famine comes, which like not just recession, but depression happening here. In verse 15, it says, so he went and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country. You need to understand here is a Jew now hiring himself out to work for somebody who wasn't Jewish. This is unheard of. This is the lowest of lows, maybe, because it's about to get worse. And they sent him into the field to feed the pigs, an unclean animal. So here is a Jew from a, a reputable family, a wealthy family. He squandered everything. Now he has nothing Now he has to go to the unbelievers, the heathens, and beg for work. 
And the work that he's given is feeding the pigs. Like, he's getting really, really close to rock bottom now. It says, verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Can you get a picture of of how low he had come now? Of how desperate he must feel that he's just, he's wishing that he could eat with the pigs? Have you ever spent time with pigs? Like besides your children? I haven't. I've seen it on TV. I don't want to spend time with pigs. I don't want to get into the pen, the mess, the slop, and feed them. And I can't imagine being so desperate that I would want to eat what they're eating. And this is where this man is. But then, verse 17, he came to himself, he came to his senses. His eyes were beginning to open. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, I want you to hear this. And I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and, had, and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So this young son hits rock bottom and he's brought to a point of repentance. He realizes that he has sinned first against God and also against his father. And in the sight of men, and the, the son's repentance leaves him to his father and he has this this spirit of unworthiness as he comes back to his father. And he doesn't come to his father with any demands, with any claims, saying that he has a right to anything. He's only coming to the father hoping to receive mercy. And the father looks at him coming from a long way off and runs to him. And is filled with compassion. And he doesn't scold him. And he doesn't tell him everything that he did wrong. And he doesn't tell him how he needs to make things right. And how he needs to clean up. He just loves him. 
and he paves the way for his restoration. And the father celebrates and everyone else celebrates because he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and he's been found. And that, that dead and alive just blows me away. And I think of Ephesians when it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Do you know what it means to be dead? You can't do anything. You can't breathe. You can't think. You can't set your heart to God at all because you're dead. You have no desire for the things of God. No desire to do right. It's what Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to our own ways. That's what we want. We want what we want and we want it now. We want our way. I'm, we started with the, the, the catechism this morning and we went through the commandments and that first commandment, you shall have no other God before me. And that's the one that we violate the most. We put ourselves on the throne and want what we want and do what we want and believe what we want to believe and don't want to believe the things that make us uncomfortable. And you may be here this morning and and you say, I don't know if I believe and I don't know if there's a God. In fact, I don't believe that there's a God. I'm, I'm asking you to be open this morning and think about this. If, if, if you had all knowledge in all the universe that is known and unknown, then you'd be able to say that there's no God. If you had all the knowledge that man knows, there'd be gaps in what you know. And you couldn't say that there is no God. Like even here in Midland where, there's, where I keep hearing that there's this really high concentration of, of PhDs and really smart people. In all of your knowledge, if you, it, like, you just have a fraction of the knowledge that there is. You can't say that there is no God. If you're, if you're being honest, the best that you can say is, I don't know if there's a God. Because when you say there is no God, you're saying that you have all knowledge. And in a sense, you're saying, I am God. We all like sheep have gone astray. We all want to do our own thing. We all want to follow our own rules. And we've sinned against God. And we're in rebellion against him. And we see this contrast here between the Pharisees who love the possessions, but they don't care so much about people. They rejoice rejoice over things, and they don't rejoice over people. And you look at, at the father, and he runs to meet the son. The father doesn't make the son grovel. He doesn't even, he like cuts off the son's confession. The son is in the middle of confessing his sin and the father's like, okay, I've got you. And he celebrates. Then you're going to see the the son enter in here in verse um, 
25. Now the older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house. And he heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he, the brother, was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, do you hear the disdain for his brother there? When this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, when this son of yours came, you killed a fattened calf for him. And what Jesus is doing is showing the heart of the Pharisees here. The, the sinners were coming to Jesus, and the Pharisees are like, they're grumbling and complaining. Sinners, tax collectors, unworthy people, unclean people. They, we're the ones who've done it right, Jesus. We're the ones who follow the law. We're the ones who keep the rules and who do the sacrifices. And, and you're welcoming them in? We're supposed to have the position of honor. And the Pharisees love to use all of these external criteria and standards. And Jesus is always looking at the heart. And we quickly, quickly will say that thieves and rapists and murderers and, and violence, that, that that is horrible. But Jesus is revealing here that, that it's your heart. And it's the motives of the heart that is what he sees. And that, what he care, and, and that is what he cares about. And right now, I imagine that there's people here that, that have sin. And they've never confessed that to God. And they want to, but they're afraid of what the Pharisees are going to think of them. They're afraid of, of, of what the church is going to think of their sin and of their problem. And maybe, just maybe, there's someone here who's a believer, but you're hiding a sin. I can't imagine that, that in, a, in a room this size that there's not somebody struggling with infidelity or with a financial secret that they're hiding from their wife or their business partner or a youth who's struggling with something that they think that they can't tell anybody because nobody would understand because they'd be judged for that. That there's no way... That, that God can forgive them and there, there's no way that this church would receive them. And I know that churches like to say, yeah, we're different though. We wouldn't be like that. And I want you to know today that I can tell you that this church is different. And this church is not like that. 
because they did that for me. Four years ago, I was pastoring a church. And, um, and I went astray. And I was in the middle of a battle with alcoholism that would lead to me losing the ministry, that would lead to me being hospitalized and spending time in rehab, and my wife not wanting me to come home until she knew that I had changed. And my children not wanting to speak to me. And when I finished rehab, Pastor Gibb was at the doors to pick me up and to take me into his house where I could stay. And Pastor Gibb took me to a prayer meeting with the elders of this church. And none of them said, look what you did. But they embraced me and they loved me. And couples from this church, the Bogans and Paul and Betty Reese, cared for me and for my wife. And a men's Bible study group on Tuesday morning embraced me and loved me and never wagged their finger at me. And they rejoiced. They rejoiced that a sinner had come back. And I want to tell you that if you've got a sin that you think God won't forgive, I know that he forgives. And if you think that your church isn't going to understand, I know that they understand. And there's great joy in the seeking and receiving of sinners. When I was a new Christian, I never, I never grew up in church. And I was saved when I was 16 years old. I started going to youth group, youth pastor, and we'd finish a meeting and he'd say, okay, Greg, who do you know that's not saved that we need to pray for? And I'm, what do you mean? And he said, well, you need to have a list of people who aren't saved that you're praying for. And I said, okay, I'm going to do what I'm told. And I started making a list of people that aren't saved that I would start praying for. And then he said, well, I need to teach you how to pray for them. And he had this four by four prayer. It's four prayers, four words each. And this is great if we're serious about the task of seeking the lost. I want to read Matthew 13, verses 14 and 16. 14 through 16. It says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's hearts have grown dull, their ears can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, 
lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So he had this four-by-four prayer. The first thing is, God, open their ears. Because they don't want to hear, because they can't hear. And you have a coworker, or you have a friend, or somebody that you know that isn't saved, and you need to be praying, God, open their ears so that they can hear the truth about you. But then second, God, open their eyes. Because they don't want to see their truth. They're blinded. They're blinded to the truths of God. They're blinded by spiritual forces. We need to pray, God, open their hearts. Do you know why we need to pray that? Because dead people's hearts don't beat. And until God changes their hearts, they're not going to understand the truths of God. So we pray, God, open their hearts. Don't put the last one up yet. Because this is the most important one, and I want to read Ephesians. And this is uh, a prayer in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul's talking about praying, and he says, And pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So the fourth prayer God, open my mouth. Open my mouth so that I could speak. You can pray and pray and have lists and lists, but you need to open your mouth and share with them the truths of the gospel. Because if we have tasted that marvelous grace, if we have felt the embrace of a father welcoming us in, knowing that we're sinners and that we've sinned against God and against mad and against man, and he still welcomes us in, then we have to be compelled to share this news with others, to tell others the good news. Everybody, just about everybody's aware of the comedic magicians Penn and Teller, right? Um, they they got their start in uh, in the eighties, really, so the late nineteen hundreds for you kids again, and uh, and Penn Jillette is one half of Penn and Teller, and he's an atheist, but he said something really honest that I want to read to you. He said, "I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't share their faith." I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, you think, well, it's not worthy telling them this because it'll make it socially awkward. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that ever life is possible, but never tell them? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I, where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. He, you care about somebody enough to tell them. This is from an atheist. 
saying, I don't believe that. But if you really believe that, how can you not tell it? How can you not warn people? How can you not share that love? And that's why I believe people in this church did it for me. Because they knew God's grace deeply and personally. They knew how wretched their hearts are. That they had themselves had sinned against God and man. And they had tasted the grace that God gives. And they had to share that with me. And they want to share that with you. And they want you to know that. Could you imagine? I asked, I asked somebody to give me our attendance for the, for the year each Sunday. And for the last five Sundays, there have been 600 people average in this auditorium. Okay? Well, in the, in the building. So let's imagine 100 of them are like 12 and under. Not that I don't think 11-year-olds can't share their faith, but I like numbers that are easy to work with because I'm bad at math. So let's imagine that 500 of you are starting to make a list of people you know who aren't saved. And you begin to pray for them. And if 500 of you started going out and opening your mouths to share this hope that you, that you say that you have of a great God who loved you despite your sinfulness and, shape, and, and saved you. And we started not just praying for people, but sharing this good news with one person every week. 500 people out in the greater Midland area sharing the gospel one week, once a week. And then if God began to answer those prayers, what would happen if we truly tasted God's grace, knew that we were dead and lost in our sins, yet the Father saved us? We would go out and find great joy in seeking and saving, and seeking and receiving sinners. In my time as a pastor, I'm going to grab this chair for something. In my time as a pastor, um, I had a small church with a lot of really old people. And I spent a lot of time in homes and nursing care facilities with people who are dying and close to death. And, and I do that now as a chaplain for hospice. And I'll never forget this lady who's dying of cancer. And they've decided that there's nothing else they can do. She's 90-ish years old. She's lived a full life. And she just wants to die comfortably. And I go and visit her and... Um, and her stomach is full of tumors, and it's just huge. And she's sitting in this recliner in so much pain. And her legs are just swollen with edema. Her ankles are as big around as my thighs. And they're just weeping with fluids, and she's in pain. But she's a believer. And she's telling me that she when she got saved and how she knows she's saved and all of these things that she did for the church and, and how she's ready to go and be with Jesus. 
that that's what she wants. And she keeps praying for that. And he doesn't take her. And she says, what I realized is that the girls who work here aren't saved. And I need to tell them. And she's talking and like with halted breaths because to take a deep breath hurts her so badly. And every week I would go and visit her and she'd tell me how she sat with this girl and told her the good news of the gospel. And she sat with that girl and got to tell them about Jesus. And even though she's in pain and she's drawing her last breaths, she's finding great joy in seeking and receiving sinners. That's what I want for us. If you're at the point of the prodigal son, where you feel completely separated from God, that you feel lost, and you're willing to admit your sin, come to him. Know that the Father will forgive you when you come. And know that this church will embrace you when you come. And if you know this great grace already, and you've tasted the forgiveness that comes from the Father, then pray for the lost and share with the lost so that together we could experience the great joy of seeking and receiving sinners. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I pray this morning that each person here would have their hearts challenged and changed by you. That those who know they need to come would come to you, God, like this young man and confess their sins to you and receive the forgiveness that you offer through Jesus. And God, that those who are saved would be stirred in their hearts to go out into this world and seek and receive sinners. And that all this would be to your glory and your praise. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.